Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors and just want to welcome you, let you know we're glad uh, that you're here. Uh, we are in the middle of a series walking through the book of Micah. And so if you've got your Bible, you can make your way uh, to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, it's on page 730. Uh, and if you did grab one of those Bibles and you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible. That's our gift to you as a church. Um, now, with it being PCS season, I know some of you may be new to North Carolina, so I wanted to let you in on some of our unique laws in North Carolina so that you're not caught off guard uh, as a new resident. And so, for example, in North Carolina, it is illegal uh, to serve alcohol at a bingo game, uh, and it's also illegal for a bingo game to last more than five hours. Uh, you have to wonder how out of control bingo games used to get back in the day that both of those laws uh, got put on the books. Uh, it is illegal to rollerblade on the highway, and it is also illegal to drive your car on the sidewalk in North Carolina. And so, don't know what it was like where you came from, but, but here in North Carolina, please don't do uh, either of those things. Uh, it's illegal to steal kitchen grease in North Carolina. If you steal less than $1,000 worth, uh, it's a misdemeanor, but if you steal more than $1,000 worth of kitchen grease, uh, it is a felony, and, and you're going to be on the hook for that, uh, so don't be stealing kitchen grease either. If you deal and sell illegal drugs uh, in North Carolina, you're still required to pay taxes on those, and so if you're going to make that your profession, uh, I guess you should at least fill out your W-9 and make sure that you do that. Uh, it is illegal to use an elephant to plow your cotton fields in North Carolina. So if you're going to work with cotton, uh, you're going to need to find something other than an elephant to do it. And then if the internet is right, uh, I hope it's not, it is also illegal in North Carolina to sing off-key. Uh, apparently, there was a Methodist pastor down in Lumberton back in the day singing so loud and so off-key that his congregation got so mad at him uh, that they reported him to the authorities and got this law passed. And so I would just ask you, uh, please don't do that to me. I, I really would be in trouble if this law starts getting enforced again. Uh, obviously, some of those laws sound a little bit silly, and, and maybe they served a purpose when they were first put on the books, but they, they sound a little bit outdated now. But but, but others of those, even though they're pretty basic, would still be enforced today. You know, you still can't drive your car on the sidewalk and uh, do things like this. And it, it does show the truth that when you come into a new place, you've got to obey the laws of that place. You've got to submit to the laws of that land. Again, all of these laws are still on the books, and many of them would still be enforced today. And this was even more true back in the day when every place was filled with kings and kingdoms. When you came into a new place, you were uh, subject to the, the rules of that place. You had to submit yourself to that kingdom and live under the rule of that king. Well, in Micah chapter 4, Micah introduced us to the, the kingdom of Jesus and what it's going to look like when, when, when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. And now here in chapter 5, Micah's going to show us what the king of that kingdom looks like and what it looks like for us to submit to his rule, what it looks like to live, for us to live as citizens of his kingdom and submit our lives uh, to the rule of Jesus as the king. And so really, Micah's going to answer two questions for us in the text this morning. What does the king look like, and what does it look like to make him our king? 
what does the king look like, and what does it look like to make him our king? And so let's see this together. Micah chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1, we'll read uh, through the entire chapter. Starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hand. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. God, would you bless the preaching of your word now? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to believe and know that the coming of Jesus as our good king is our hope, is our life, is our joy, is our freedom. God, would you do what you promised to do in this chapter? and cut off and remove all of these substitute kings from our lives so that we would trust Jesus as our king. Would you help us to see his beauty and his glory through the words of your scripture? pray that you would in your name. Amen. Now, well, first, what does the king look like? Uh, in, in verse 1, Micah describes the situation kind of right now that the people of God face. It's as if Assyria is right outside the gates of Israel and they can lean over the gates and strike the king of Israel on the cheek with a rod. That's how close exile is to them. But then in verse 2, Micah shifts to where the people of God can place their hope, and, and that's in the coming of this future king. 
And look at what he says about this king. He says this king is going to come from Bethlehem, Epatratha. Uh, this is where King David was from. And so with this, Micah is showing that in the coming of this king, God is going to fulfill and keep his promises, specifically the promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, uh, that he would raise up someone from David's line to rule and reign over God's people forever and be their savior uh, and be their king. And so this king is going to be born in the future in Bethlehem to be the ruler of all of God's people, uh, to lead and rule over all of Israel. But, but his birth in Bethlehem is not actually where he got his start. Did you notice that? It said he's going to come forth from Bethlehem, Epaphratha, but his coming forth is actually from of old, from ancient days. And that phrase, ancient days, would, would be better translated eternity. In fact, when that word's used in other places in the Old Testament, that is how it's translated. Like Deuteronomy 33, which says, The eternal God is your dwelling place, uh, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And, and so we're getting a description of someone who would be born in Bethlehem, but, but, didn't, but existed before his birth in Bethlehem, whose coming forth is actually from of old, from eternity, who, who didn't get his start in Bethlehem because he actually doesn't have a start. He's eternal. And, and so who is Micah talking about? Well, clearly the only person Micah could be talking about here is Jesus. And if we had any doubt about this, Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, quotes from Micah 5 to say that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Micah 5 said, that Jesus is this king and ruler who would be born in Bethlehem. And so in Micah chapter 5, we're getting an incredibly clear picture of who Jesus is. The one who would be born as a human being in Bethlehem uh, is actually from of old, is from eternity, has existed forever. And, and with that, Micah also gives us one of the Bible's clearest statements of the doctrine of eternal generation. Now, what is that? Well, eternal generation is how we understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's how we understand who Jesus as the Son of God is. And so, uh, if you were here and you remember, back to our Attributes of God series, we talked about how the Bible's language for God is analogical. It gives us an analogy, a metaphor that doesn't tell us exhaustively what's true about God, but still does give us the truth uh, through this analogy and metaphor that it uses. And so think about uh, this metaphor, this analogy of generation. What does it mean to be a father? It means you've generated a son or a daughter. You're not a father if you don't have a daughter or a son. This is why the Bible calls God the Father, God the Father, because he has generated a son. But, but again, this is where the language for that is an analogy. It's a metaphor because for us, for human beings, for those of us who are fathers, uh, there was a time when we weren't a father. We existed before we were fathers. I, I existed for 27 years of my life without being a father. Spent a good chunk of time not being a, a father, but that's not the case when we're talking about God. God the Father has always been the father because he has always had the son. His generation of the son is eternal. There's never a time when Jesus the son did not exist because this is an eternal generation. This is why Micah says that Jesus' coming forth is from of old, from eternity. 
That's why when we confess the Nicene Creed together as a church, we confess that we believe that Jesus is begotten, not made. He's not made by the Father. He's not created by the Father. He's eternally begotten. He's eternally generated from the Father. And this helps us understand who Jesus as the Son of God is because sons share the same nature as their father. I mean, take a guy who works in construction. He makes and he builds houses for a living. And what's true about the houses that he built? Those houses don't share the same nature as him. They're fundamentally unlike him. But if he has a son, that's totally different, right? He, he generated, or if we want to use some older English, he begot that son. And that son does have the same human nature that he does. That son is fundamentally like him. Well, again, God the Father did not make Jesus. He did not create Jesus. He didn't build Jesus. He eternally begot. He eternally generated Jesus, which means that Jesus is the Son of the Father, the eternal Son of the Father, and He shares the same divine nature as His Father. He's co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father, and so Jesus is fully God as the eternal Son of God. And I'm telling you all of this, one, to show you how clear the Bible's witness is to Jesus. I mean, even in the Old Testament, we're getting this incredibly clear uh, promise and picture of how Jesus' birth in Bethlehem is not just a, a human birth, that He is both God and man. This is God in the flesh when He's born in Bethlehem. But then two, I'm bringing this up because the text makes a really tight connection between His coming forth as a human being in Bethlehem and His coming forth from God from all of eternity. It is because of who Jesus is as the Son of God by nature that He can become a human being in time and come to rescue us and save us. Uh, and, And this is how God accomplishes salvation. This is how God sets everything back to right. God was the rightful king of the world that he created and of the people that he created. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against his kingship, did not want him to be king over their lives. And so Jesus comes as a human being. And in the coming of Jesus as a human being, God is both restoring his kingdom and his kingship again, and he's restoring the world to what it meant to be, what it was meant to be. Uh, What T.H. White titled his fantasy novels about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is a really fitting description of the king Micah is describing here. Jesus is the once and future king. He is the king who, uh, when we rebelled and rejected his kingship, he came as a man to restore his kingdom and restore us back to himself. And Micah tells us that the coming of Jesus as the king is our hope. In verse 3, he says that God's going to give up his people into exile until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, referring to Mary giving birth to Jesus. But once Mary gives birth to Jesus, Jesus will grow and he'll begin to reign as the king and he'll bring God's people back to him and he will stand and shepherd them and lead them in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God. And then we get a beautiful promise of what Jesus will do as the king in verse 5. It says that as the king, Jesus will be our peace. Jesus will be our peace as the king because he comes to be the mediator between God and man. He comes to 
pay the debt for our sin that we should have paid for and rise from the dead to defeat it so that our relationship to God would be one that's characterized by peace, where our sins would be forgiven. We'd be counted righteous before God, and we would stand before God fully loved, fully accepted, and fully known by God. And so Jesus brings peace And this leads to this promise of protection that Micah gives us in verses 5 and 6. Micah says when when Jesus comes as the king, he's going to begin to establish his rule, and he's going to do that over Assyria. And and when Assyria is used here in verses 5 and 6, it seems to be being used symbolically. Remember, this is poetry, and when Jesus came into the world, the nation of Assyria was no longer a threat, and so... This seems to be symbolic, and it seems to stand for the ultimate enemies of God's people, of sin and death and Satan. And so God's going to raise up shepherds and leaders who will lead under the leadership of Jesus the Good Shepherd, who will protect His people and be a means of fighting against sin as Jesus establishes His kingdom. And then notice the shift in pronouns in verse 6. It says, "...they will shepherd the land of Assyria." but he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. The, the he that the passage is talking about there is the one that it's been talking about the whole time, the, the king who would come and, and shepherd and lead his people. It's talking about Jesus. Because Jesus has come as defeated our enemies of sin and death and Satan in his death, we no longer have anything to fear from sin and Satan and death. Jesus has and will deliver us. And then we get this double-sided promise in verses 7 through 9. Again, Micah says as Jesus uh, begins to rule as king, he spreads his rule throughout the whole world. He tells us that his rule is going to be multi-ethnic, multinational. It won't just be made up of people from Israel. God's people will be in the midst of many peoples and in the midst of many nations, and they will be like dew on the grass. They'll be a source of life and blessing and refreshment to people. And then we get the flip side of this when he says that they'll also be like a lion that devours and tears through and none can stop it from devouring. And so what is Micah saying here? Well, it sounds really similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says that as followers of Jesus, we are the aroma of Christ both to those who are saved and to those who are perishing. Uh, For one, a fragrance from life to life. For the other, a fragrance from death to death. And so what Micah is saying is that as Jesus establishes his kingdom and he spreads it through his people, uh, for some people, we're going to be a source of life and blessing as we bear witness to his kingdom through our words and through our deeds. Some people are going to hear the good news of the gospel and repent and be saved, and, and our presence will be a blessing to them. But other people are going to hear the gospel and they're going to reject it and our presence will be a source of judgment to them because they've rejected the king. Jesus is spreading his kingdom throughout the whole world and whether that's a source of blessing or whether that's a source of judgment depends on how you respond to the king. And so this is who Jesus as the king is. He's the son of David and the son of God who would be born in Bethlehem to Uh, establish his rule, rule over God's people, be our peace, lead us and shepherd us, and spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And so because of that, Micah moves next in the text to ask us and show us uh, what does it look like to make him our king. 
And so let's look at that together. Verse 10, look at verse 10 again with me. It says, And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And so again, what what Micah is describing here in verses 10 through 15 is how Jesus as the king begins to establish his rule. Horses and chariots are what people would look to as a source of power and strength. These were the old school military vehicles. Uh, Verse 11, cities and strongholds are places you would look to for security and safety and refuge. Verse 12, uh, sorceries and fortune tellers are where you would look for wisdom and guidance and help in making decisions and how to live your life. In verses 13 and 14, false gods and idols are where you would look for meaning and purpose and significance and satisfaction uh, in your life. God is highlighting all of these substitute kings that we look to and showing us that he's going to begin to remove those things from our lives. He's going to begin to cut those out so that we'll actually start to trust Jesus as our king, begin to live under his rule. Because so often we treat our relationship with Jesus like we're on a road trip and uh, he's riding shotgun. And so he's helping us navigate, he's giving us directions, and he's been there before, so he's got some pretty good directions, but it's still up to us whether or not we listen. You know, sometimes we take Jesus' directions, sometimes we don't, but we're still in the driver's seat. That's not what it looks like to make Jesus your king. To, to have Jesus as your king is not just to treat him as a savior who forgives your sins and makes you, gives you some help and good advice in life. It's to treat him as your Lord. To make Jesus your king doesn't even mean that you just listen to all of his directions. It means you get out of the driver's seat. All of these are substitute kings that we look to instead of treating Jesus as our king. And so just ask yourself, Where does this describe you? Where have you stayed in the driver's seat? Power and strength. What what are you looking to for power and strength? Like like horses and chariots. The way you answer that question is, what do you look to, what do you think will, will be powerful and strong enough to order and control your life? Or what is it that you look to that you think is going to help you control your life? When you face a problem in your life, what do you think is going to fix it? If it's your intelligence and your ingenuity, then you're going to think, well, I can just think and strategize my way out of any problem or difficulty that I might face. If it's your power and strength, you'll think, well, if I just work a little bit harder, put in a few more hours, do a little bit more sweat equity, uh, then I'll be able to fix this problem. Whatever it is, you can know you're looking to something else for for a source of power and strength. When when you're faced with a problem in life, you strategize or you think or you act first and then pray later, or you just don't pray at all. Because why would you need to ask God for help when you've already kind of figured it out on your own? Why would you need Jesus to be your king when you already do a pretty good job running your own life? Cities and strongholds, what do you look to as a source of security and safety and refuge? The way you answer that question is by asking the question, when when you get fearful, when you get anxious, what do you use to calm your heart and tell yourself, I'm safe, everything is going to be okay as long as this is still in my life? More specifically, what is it that you look to to cover over 
and, and calm down your feelings and sense of inadequacy and shame when those crop up in your life? What do you look to, not just to tell you that everything else is going to be okay, but that you're okay? For some of us, it's money. We've convinced ourselves that money in the bank account will be a refuge for us that will keep us safe from any sort of devastating harm. For others of us, it's the stuff that money can buy us. We've We believe that a a bigger, nicer, more comfortable house really will be a refuge from the storm that will keep us safe from anything that might threaten us on the outside. For others of us, it's, it's romance and family. The promise and the hope and the ideal of romance and family has convinced us that if we can just get that, that will be enough to calm down and numb our sense of shame and our sense of inadequacy. It'll be enough to tell us that we really do matter, and that we really are okay. And look, it's not like any of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to have family. But it is wrong to treat them as your refuge, as the thing that's going to calm your heart and get rid of your fears and calm your anxiety when it crops up in your life. Sorceries and fortune tellers, what are you looking to for wisdom and guidance in your life? The way you know is by whoever it is, is principles and teachings that you're convinced if you just put these into practice, they're going to give you the good life. And for so many of us now, this has become talking heads and podcast hosts. Because, man, there's a podcast for any question that you have. There's a podcast that can give you wisdom on any issue that you might face. And there's so many podcast hosts who are willing to give you their opinion on everything. And you know that you've moved into treating these things and these people as a source of ultimate guidance and wisdom when you start to defend how much you listen to them by saying things like, well, they just got a really interesting perspective on things. Nobody else puts it like they do or... You know, they just, it's really intriguing. I've never heard anybody else put it that way. They give me a lot of things to think about. Or, you know, they just tell it like it is. Nobody else tells it like it is anymore. And look, again, it's not wrong to look to, for wisdom and guidance and advice from other sources, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. But, but it is wrong when those things start to form you in a way that God's Word is not forming you. When those sources start to form you towards a a rival vision of the good life and a rival kingdom that looks nothing like Jesus' kingdom. And and you can know that they're starting to do this when you start being more consistent in uh, watching news or engaging with your favorite podcast more than you do uh, spend time engaging with your Bible. When a a question pops up in your life and your first thought is, I wonder what so-and-so would say about this, instead of, I wonder what God says about this. And false gods and idols, what is it that you're looking to for your ultimate source of meaning and validation and identity and significance? What is it in your life that you're telling yourself, if I just have this, I'll be happy. If I can just hold on to this, everything will be okay. Again, these are all substitute uh, kings that we put in place and we look to instead of Jesus to be our king and to lead and guide us and save us. But to make Jesus our king means to look to Jesus for power and strength, to look to Jesus for safety and security and refuge, to look to Jesus for wisdom and guidance, to look to Jesus for identity and meaning and purpose. But if we're honest with ourselves, 
we would admit that, that so often that's not where we look for these things. So often we do look to other things uh, instead of Jesus and look for substitute kings. That so often we're so comfortable to have Jesus as our Savior, but not as our King. But look, we can't do that. Trying to have Jesus as our Savior, but not as our King, would be as silly as me coming to your house and you stopping me at the front door and telling me, Ryan Ross, hey, Ryan, you can come into my house, but leave the Ross part of you outside on the front porch. I don't really like that part of you. I can't do that. Right? It's impossible. You can't separate me out like that. Wherever I go, I go as Ryan Ross. Well, in the same way, wherever Jesus goes, he goes as the king. If you want him to come into your life, you cannot stop him at the front door of your life and say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life as my Savior, but leave your crown on the front porch when you come in. I don't want you to rule over my life. No, if Jesus is going to come into your life as the Savior, he's going to come into your life as the king. But the good news is that if you want Him to be your King, if you want Him to rule and reign over your life, if you'll uh, ask Him to come into your life as the King, He will save you and He'll start to establish His rule in your life. Because maybe you noticed as we read through verses 10 through 15, these actually aren't commands, they're promises. Micah is, God is not saying through Micah, if you can just do a good enough job of getting rid of your chariots and horses, your cities and your strongholds, your sorceries and fortune tellers, if you can cut out and remove all these substitute kings out of your life, then I'll save you and I'll come into your life as your king. No, he says the exact opposite. He says Jesus will come as the king, he'll come into your life, and then he'll start establishing his rule in your life. He will remove these things. Notice he says, I will destroy them. I will cut them off. I will remove. I will, I will, I will do this. When Jesus comes into your life as the Savior and the King, he starts to expose all of these substitute kings that we've been looking to so that we'll actually begin to live under his rule as the King. And so if you've tried to find life in one of these substitute kings and it's not working for you, That's an incredible grace of God. You should rejoice in that. God is exposing those things as a dead end so that you'll stop looking to them to save you and give you life and freedom. And you should rejoice because God is only removing things in your life that if you make them ultimate, they will end up destroying you. But maybe you're thinking, you know, yeah, I, I trust Jesus and... I'm still addicted to a ton of these substitute kings. Uh, Jesus has not been doing very much of this cutting off and removing work in my life. And so maybe this is just a promise for the future. Maybe when Jesus comes back again, uh, then I'll experience some freedom from these substitute kings. But that's not what the text says. Look again at what verse 10 says. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, I'll cut off your horses from among you. What day is Micah talking about? What's the day when the king comes, when he's born in Bethlehem and he begins to establish his rule? So Micah is saying this is not a promise for the future. This is a promise for right now. Trey talked about this a little bit last week, but what we see from the New Testament as Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom is that the kingdom of Jesus is already and not yet. 
It is already here. Jesus has already accomplished the work of salvation. And He is ruling and reigning as the King right now. He has established His kingdom, but it's not yet here in the fullness of what it's going to be when He returns. Um, Do you remember when you were a kid, and kids, I hope you had this experience a, a few months ago. Do you remember when you were a kid and the bell would ring on the last day of class for the last day of school, releasing you into summer break? I just remember the sense of joy and and anticipation that I felt as I'm walking out of school after that bell rang, thinking about all the fun that the summer would hold, all the trips to to the lake and to the pool, and maybe a family vacation that we had planned out, all the freedom that I was going to have on summer break. It was just so much joy at thinking about that after that bell rang. Now, when that final bell rang on the last day of school, what was true in that moment? It was already summer break, right? Like that, that was already here. School could not hold you any longer. It had no claim on you. You were free to start enjoying summer break. Even though summer break wasn't yet here in the fullness of what it would be, all you had to do to enjoy it was to step out of school and, and walk into it and start enjoying more of it. Well, the same thing is true with the rule of Jesus as the king. Jesus has already come has established His kingdom. He's ruling and reigning as the King. And so if you want more of the joy of His kingdom in your life, all you've got to do is step into it. If you want to enjoy Him more as the King, all you've got to do is to step into living like Jesus is your King. We have convinced ourselves that our substitute kings are really summer break, and following and obeying Jesus is, being, is like being stuck in summer school But the exact opposite is true. Obeying Jesus and submitting to His rule is actually the way to flourish. It is summer break. It is the trip to the beach. It is the relaxing day at the pool. If you will submit your life to Jesus as the King, if you will stop negotiating with Him about what parts of His Word you will and won't obey, if you'll give Him your life as a blank check for Him to fill out as to where you should go and what you should do, you'll experience more of the joy of life with Him as your King because life with Him as your King, submitting your life to Him under His good rule, that's how He created the world to be. So this is Jesus as the King, and and so how do we do this? How do we step into this more? How do you put yourself in a place for God to do more of this cutting off and removing work in your life? How do you step more into the freedom and joy of Jesus being your king? Well, if you want to have your heart moved away from substitute kings and substitute saviors, you've got to have your heart captured by a more beautiful savior and king. There's something else that the passage tells us about Jesus that we passed over uh, a little bit earlier. But look again at what it says about Bethlehem Epatratha in verse 2. It says that it is too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. So in Israel, you had the 12 tribes, and Judah was one of those 12 tribes. And then within each of the 12 tribes, you had what were called clans. And clans were like an extended family unit. So think like kids and parents and cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and great-grandparents. This is what a clan would look like and what a clan would be made up of. And Micah is saying that Bethlehem is such a small town and has such a small amount of people that it doesn't even get counted among the clans 
of Judah. Like, unless you've got a specific address and you've zoomed in a whole bunch on maps, Bethlehem is not showing up on the map. But Micah says it's from this no-name place that doesn't even show up on the map that God's going to bring forth the Savior who will be the Savior and ruler of the entire world. And this just fits right into a pattern we see all throughout the Old Testament that God accomplishes the salvation and deliverance of His people through people and places that it makes absolutely no sense to. Abraham repeatedly feared other people more than God and lied to save his own skin and put his wife in harm's danger multiple times to save his own skin. Jacob was a cheater and a deceiver and spent the vast majority of his life running as far as he could away from God. Leah was unloved and unwanted compared to her beautiful sister Rachel. Judah was a moral degenerate in a trash bag compared to his brother Joseph. Moses was angry and could not speak well. God says he didn't choose Israel because they were the biggest and most powerful of all the nations. He says they were the smallest and the weakest of all of the nations. In the book of Judges, God whittles down Gideon's army to 300 men to go fight against an army of tens of thousands. And when the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse to anoint one of his sons as the king of Israel, Jesse doesn't even think to put David before him because David is the runt of the family. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God accomplishes salvation in the most unexpected ways through the most unexpected people. And there's a reason why God does this. God is preparing us for the day when He would accomplish His ultimate salvation in the most unexpected way possible. You see, Micah 5 is telling us that salvation is not going to come from the city lights or from the Hollywood stars. Salvation is coming from the backwoods. It's not going to come through what the world looks at as strong and powerful and wise. It's going to look like foolishness and weakness. We have all rebelled against and rejected God as our King, but God loves us too much to leave us in our rebellion, so He comes to save us. But when He comes to save us, He does it in the most unexpected way possible. Instead of a great show of power and strength, God comes in a display of absolute weakness. You would think that when the God of the universe came into the world to save it, He would come into a ticker tape parade and a well-furnished palace and a coronation, but the exact opposite happened. Instead, He's born in the middle of nowhere to poor teenage parents, and His first bed is a feeding trough, and He's a helpless baby. And as He grows, Jesus does not have people wait on Him and serve Him like a king. Instead, He serves us. And when Jesus establishes His kingdom and His kingship, He does not do it through swords and tanks and a show of military strength, but through being arrested and rejected and crucified on a cross. See, Micah 5 is pointing us towards the day when the God of the universe would become a little baby born into poverty and suffering so that He could save you. Pointing forward to the day when the God of all the universe would endure mocking and hatred and scorn and rejection so that He could reconcile you to the day when the King who deserves all glory and honor would instead be treated with the ultimate shame and dishonor so that He could die on a cross and forgive you. And listen, if you will see that, 
if you will see the way that Jesus has made himself small and has come in absolute weakness and humility to save you, and it will melt your heart away from trusting in these substitute kings and move you to put your trust in Jesus. Why would you not want to live your whole life for the king who has done this for you? Are you looking for somebody who's got power and strength to control and guide your life? Well, anybody who is dead and then decides they just don't want to be anymore fits that bill of being powerful and strong. And anyone who loves you enough to die on a cross to forgive your sins, someone you can trust to do what is best for you, to know what is best for you. If you want somebody to guide and control your life, you want it to be the guy who died on a cross for you. That's, that's proof enough that his rule and his power over your life is going to be characterized by his love for you. Are you looking for security and refuge? Well, Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, has actually conquered the enemies that can ultimately harm us. He's conquered sin and death. If you are trusting in Jesus and you're united to him by faith, then Jesus has already paid for for your sin and has conquered your death. And so sin and death can't separate you from God any longer. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus has protected you from the things that can ultimately harm you. And so if He's already done that, why would He not be a refuge that we can continually run to when any smaller suffering or difficulty or hard circumstance comes into our lives? Are you looking for wisdom and guidance? Well, any king who is good enough to not just hand down edicts and commands and rules from on high, but actually come down and die for servants who rejected him is a king we can trust to know what is best for us. A king whose commands are not harsh rules to chain us up, but are instead boundaries and guidelines into where to walk if we want to walk in joy and life and freedom. Are you looking for meaning, purpose, and identity, validation? Well, in the coming of Jesus as the King, He can give you a whole new life and a whole new story. Following Jesus, being saved by Jesus, is not just about getting your sins forgiven and getting to go to heaven when you die, as glorious as that is. It's also about becoming a citizen of Jesus' kingdom through grace, and that gives purpose to your entire life. Because the Christian life, following Jesus, is not, now I try really hard to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. It's, and I I just want to show the freedom of life with Jesus as the King, and I want to bear witness to His rule and His love and His grace and His power. Your whole life as a follower of Jesus becomes about bearing witness to the power of His kingdom to bring about new creation to all people and places and spaces. As you live a transformed life in submission to King Jesus, you bear witness to His power to transform all of life. And that's never boring. What it looks like to make Jesus, as our, to make Jesus our King is to let Him rule, to get out of the driver's seat and to let Him drive. And the more you'll see the beauty of what He did for you and the way that He loves you, the more you will. The more you'll live in glad submission to Jesus, your good King. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank You. You are the King. Thank You that You 
are the ruler of not just our lives, but of the entire world. Thank you that you're ruling and reigning right now. Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is not characterized by people who have done enough good things and who have reformed their life enough and have cleaned up enough to gain a spot in your kingdom. Thank you that your kingdom, the entrance by grace. Thank you that you have saved us apart from any good works we've done or left undone. And Jesus, I ask that you would continue to fulfill this promise in our life that you made here in Micah 5 to cut off and remove substitute kings and saviors that we look to to give us life and joy and freedom. How would you do that in our hearts and our lives? Would you have, would you move our hearts to be captured by your beauty, and your honor, your glory, and the way you've loved us, and the way you've saved us? God, I pray that you would. Please do that even now as we respond to your word. In your name, amen.